0: As we're going through the book of Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 was the Sermon on the Mount. That's where we just finished that last week, and that's where Jesus explains what the character is of a child of the kingdom. He basically lays down the morality of the way he wants it to be, and he dug behind the law to find the deeper truths and teachings and standards that cause us all to be, well, we're condemned. We all realize that we fall short of God's righteous standard when we read the Sermon on the Mount, but that's what he came for. And so that's good news. Once you realize that, you're halfway there. Now, when we come to chapters 8 and 9, it's a string of about 12 miracles that Jesus did. They weren't necessarily recorded chronologically, but they're different types of miracles. And so Matthew here lays these out partly to show how, Jesus had the power to be the Messiah, how he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy in several cases. But I also think that it's a natural outflowing of the Sermon on the Mount. Because remember how it ends at the end of chapter 7. It says, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. They were amazed when they heard what he had to say because he was so sure of himself, he was so decisive, and and what he said just made sense. It just sounded like, boy, the law, all the ritual that we've been observing, all of these festivals and, and regulations and rules, and finally somebody is explaining it to us in a way that it actually kind of makes sense. So they were amazed at his teaching, but it isn't enough just to be a teacher. It isn't enough just to talk a good game. Now Jesus shows that he has the power to back up the morality. Now he shows that not only does he have these standards, these character issues, but he demonstrates in that which he is able to do as he performs these 12 miracles. For many more than 12 people, they're kind of bunched up into 12. But Jesus is showing, look, here's God's stamp of approval on who I am. So I don't just talk, I act, and I think for all of us, as we share the Lord, as we tell people we're Christians, there's a time to talk, and there's a time for action, and we need to have our lives reflect that which we say that we believe and that which we teach, and Jesus certainly did that. The first miracle that we see here in chapter 8 is he cleansed a leper. It says, when he came down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him, and behold, a leper came... and." worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So we see this guy with leprosy. No one had ever been healed of leprosy. It's a a disease biblically that's used as a symbol for sin a lot. But it's a disease that would go into your skin and actually get into your bones, deaden your nervous system, and really cause you to have a life of misery. And, And for someone who was a leper, once the priest saw them and said, yes, that's leprosy, well, they would give them a couple weeks, and then they would look at them again, and if it hadn't cleared up, you had to be you couldn't even go back and say goodbye to your family. You had to instantly go outside the city. And they had these little leper colonies and any time anyone would get close, you would have to call out unclean, unclean because it was contagious and and it would be disastrous for it to spread throughout the people and so they quarantined anyone who had leprosy. And it was basically a life sentence. You're not going to ever hug your children again. You're not ever going to have the experience of being a part of society. But interestingly, in Leviticus chapter 14, there was a ceremony when we were studying Leviticus, we saw it, there was something that, a sacrifice, remember with the two birds and you dip one in blood and let it fly away and everything? It was a, it was a sacrifice that was to be done if anyone was healed of leprosy. But there was no one in recorded history up until this point that had actually been healed. So they knew in the back of their minds that, if anyone ever does get healed, here's what you do. But it hadn't happened yet until this point. Now a couple things that you should notice about this leper. He came up worshiping Jesus, and then he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. On the one hand, he obviously believed that Jesus could do it. Why, perhaps before this, Jesus had been healing other people, but. Perhaps just on the basis of his teaching, he realized who Jesus was and said, if you can have this kind of wisdom, if you can share the law in such a way that it finally makes sense to us, then I believe, Jesus, that you can heal me. But it's, it's kind of interesting, and I'm, I'm thankful for the fact that he, he doesn't just say, you can heal me, now do it. And I think a lot of times in our prayers, we get the idea that we command God to do things. This is certainly real prevalent nowadays in some of the faith movement where the Word of Faith people believe that you can order God to do something. If you say it, it has to happen. God's stuck. He has to do it. Oh, they would say, if you pray according to God's will, well, then you're doubting. You're not going to get anything from God. You know it's God's will. And so this idea of not praying in God's will, but Of course, Jesus didn't know that when he prayed in God's will. But here also he says, Lord, calling him the boss, master, if you are willing, you can make me clean. But he didn't wait to worship until after he was healed. He came beforehand and began to worship him. Worshiping God, worshiping Jesus just because of what he can do, not just because of what he would do for him. And I think there's a lesson there for us. We're all, unless the Lord comes back beforehand, we're all going to die of something. And we shouldn't be preoccupied with, oh, I have to get healed physically of this malady that I have. But the idea is, God, I know you can. And what I want is your will. What I want is for you to do what you want to do in my life. You know, you do what's best for me. I know you love me. And so I'll praise you and worship you either way. And so Jesus put out his hand and touched him. I think that's the most incredible part of what happened. Realize, remember, not only what a leper would feel like where no one had touched him for maybe years, he couldn't have the touch of his own family, but it was forbidden to touch someone with leprosy. The law forbade it. And Jesus, because he is the Lord of the law, he wrote it, he can define it, He knows all of the ins and outs of it. He said, I don't care what tradition says. I don't care about what this might be risking on my part. This man needs to be touched and I'm gonna touch him. There's a sense to which you can't really minister to people from a distance very well. Oh, you can have a certain impact, a certain effect, but ultimately, it's when you actually reach out and touch someone, get close enough to touch them that ultimately God is going to use that. It's why so many times in the scriptures they would lay hands on people when they were being called to ministry. And it's why Jesus often had the little children come to him and, and he touched them and he held them. And here he reaches out and touches a leper and he said, yeah, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. And, and you know then Jesus said, don't tell anybody, but go your way and show yourself to the priest. Now There are a lot of times when Jesus told people after he healed them, don't say anything. Usually they did anyway. They just couldn't bottle it up. Jesus was swamped with people a lot of times. And so uh, he had different reasons at different times as to why he did that. In this case, linguistically, it's probably what he was telling the guy is don't go running home or don't go off and tell all your friends. Immediately get to the priest so you can get signed off on this. Not only as a witness to the priest, although I'm sure at this point early in his ministry, Jesus thought, boy, a priest will be impressed. Finally, someone's healed of leprosy. But also, he wanted the guy to go and get documentation. And that way, if the scribes and Pharisees or anyone got a little concerned about it, they couldn't throw him back out and pressure the priest to say that he wasn't healed. So he was saying, basically, head straight to the priest and get this done. And it was a testimony. The next miracle here in chapter 8 is healing the servant of the centurion. It says, Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But only speak a word and my servant will be healed, for I also am a man under authority. I have soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. A Roman centurion, a Gentile, someone who was a military leader, a centurion obviously comes from 100, you know, century. And usually a Roman centurion in those days would be, the soldiers would be bunched in groups of 100. But a guy like this would probably have 60 centuries of soldiers under his care. So, you know, 60 groups of 100, 6,000 or so soldiers. In the Gospel of Luke, it tells us that this guy was a guy who had built a synagogue for the Jews there in Capernaum. Capernaum is just up at the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. That's the place, that's the area where Jesus spent most of his time. This man, this centurion, who for whatever political reasons or maybe his heart was just touched, he had a love for the Jewish people, he was a Roman, he was a Gentile, but he was kind to the Jews and like I say, built a a synagogue for him. If you've ever been to Capernaum, that parts of that synagogue still exist it was probably where Jesus did the bulk of his teaching was right there in that thing and it was this centurion who actually built it so he came to Jesus and says my servant's paralyzed now leprosy is one kind of illness and palsy or paralysis is another this was probably something that he had had for a long time but often when people are paralyzed they can endure excruciating pain, and that was apparently what was going on in his life. But the centurion is saying, Jesus, can you do something about it? I believe it. And Jesus said, yeah, I'll come to your house. And he says, no, you don't even have to come to my house. I know how it works. In the military, I tell guys to do something, they do it. I give an order, they follow orders. And he said, so just say the word, I'll believe. And Jesus, is says, marveled. It's one of the only two times in the New Testament where it says that Jesus marveled. He was really surprised. He was, wow, I can't believe this. It was this time when a Gentile Roman centurion had greater faith than the Jews that were around. And then there was another time in Mark where where Jesus, when he saw that the people in Nazareth rejected him, and he said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own country. At that point, it said Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He went and revealed himself to his own people, and they just didn't buy it. They didn't believe, and so he was amazed at that, too. But here he was amazed, and then he gives this guy credit and points out, you know, here where it says, many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. What he's prophesying, even at this point, is a lot of people who aren't Jews, a lot of people who really aren't from here, are going to end up partaking in the kingdom. And, sad to say, people who are children of Abraham, people who ought to know better, many of them are going to end up perishing, going where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. And it's interesting that he said the east and the west and not the north and the south. Um, For the most part, though, the way civilization was spread out, most of us, if we look at Israel, our descendants either come from more or less the west of Israel, or more or less the east of Israel, and some of them moving down further south. But the whole African continent and and South America and North America are all west of Israel. And then the whole, um, you know, Asian continent and the Far East and all that is would be considered east. And so he's saying people from all over are going to participate, and. It's it's interesting, too, in verse 13 that he said, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And he was healed. Belief and faith have often something to do with people being healed. Now, you can't make a real simple rule about it. But there are many times when Jesus would say to someone who's sick, Your faith has made you well. But this is an interesting case because we don't have any indication that this paralyzed servant of the centurion believed at all or maybe even knew what was going on or that Jesus was even going to pray for him. In this case, it was the faith of the centurion himself that Jesus honored and therefore healed someone else. That's intercession. That's where we pray for someone else. And it's important for us to pray with faith for us to believe God as we pray for others, and sometimes God will heal someone else just because the one praying for them has enough faith. There are other times when people were healed and it doesn't say anything about whose faith or if there was. I'm sure some of the time it was simply the faith of the person who was crying out to God, though. I think of Peter and John when with the crippled guy in the, in the um, temple, and, and they said, get up and he said, yeah, right, and they grabbed him and pulled him onto his feet, and he was able to walk and leap and praise God. That was a case of a guy being healed who had no faith himself, and there are several examples in Scripture of that. So if you're sick and you need to be healed, pray in faith. But if you don't have faith, get somebody else to pray for you who does. And you know, there, It's not a formula, but it is connected a lot of times. Then you have kind of a homey miracle. I mean, first you have you know, a leper, which had never been healed before. Then you have a, a person with, who's paralyzed. And now Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and she just has a fever. We don't have any indication that she was really you know, horribly ill or anything. It just says, Jesus had come into Peter's house and saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and served him course when you've been touched by God that's a good thing to do turn around and serve him after he's healed you if he's healed you if he's healed me then we should be serving as well but here we see nobody was really freaked out about it Peter didn't come running out my mother-in-law is sick my mother-in-law is sick well yeah, okay maybe that doesn't necessarily mean she wasn't really sick it could mean she was his mother-in-law but at any rate It's just she had a fever. You get fevers all the time. Probably going to get over it if you wait a while. And yet you see the compassion of Jesus as he healed her, as he touched her. And then beginning in verse 16, it says, when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. This is a quote from Isaiah 53, and here, in this instance, Jesus just healed a whole bunch of people and cast demons out of a whole bunch of people just with a word. It's interesting that casting demons out isn't very easy. It can be very difficult, time consuming. Jesus told his disciples when they couldn't do it one time, this time doesn't come out except by much prayer and fasting. But Jesus, exhibiting his power with just a word, the demons would flee. And casting out demons is a whole different category of healing that Jesus was doing here. And it is, if you've ever dealt with it, you really don't want to. You, when you deal with people who are demon-possessed, you do see the power of God in an amazing way as he deals with them. But it's a horrible thing to see someone go through. And uh, we, I think, it seems like there are two kinds of people. There are some people who see demons in everything. You know, i got a demon of a cold. I stubbed my toe, it was a tripping demon that got me. I can't quit smoking, so I've got a smoking demon or a cussing demon or what. You know, people are just seeing demons under every bush. On the other hand, there are people who kind of in their minds, they really just don't even think it happens. And I can tell you personally, it happens. I've seen it. I've been there several times. At the same time, the power of God is greater than he It's nothing to be afraid of. It's nothing to freak out about. And I also think that it's dangerous to start telling people that they have demons when it may not be a demon. You need to know that it's a demon. And demons manifest themselves in really obvious ways. The problem is a lot of times mental illness looks a lot like it. And a lot of people who are mentally ill who have seen too many movies seem to show all of the evidences of demons when in fact they may not be. But Jesus with a word was a... I can't get off on demons anymore. We'll do that another time. But... Anyway, he's healing all these people, casting out demons in order to fulfill in Isaiah 53 where he said he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Now, this is an important verse, an important thing for us to understand, I think, because there's a lot of discussion as to when it says that he bore our sicknesses in Isaiah 53. In fact, turn over there. We'll be really lucky to get through two chapters tonight. But the question is, when it's talking about Jesus, it says, verse 4, Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And the word there for sorrows literally is sicknesses. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So a lot of discussion. Because if, in fact, Jesus dying for us guarantees healing, if his giving his blood on the cross bought healing, physical healing for us, and the way they word this theologically is, do you believe that there is physical healing in the atonement? That is, what Jesus paid, does it include physical healing? There are a lot of people nowadays who teach that, in fact, there is a guarantee of healing in the atonement, based on Isaiah 53. Now, there are a lot of other people who take the position that, no, it's not talking about physical healing. And they would point to, for instance, in Verse 6 of Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So they would say it's obvious what's laid on Jesus is our sin. And that is a sickness, certainly. And that's what he guarantees that he will heal because of the atonement. But back here in Matthew chapter 8... The problem with people who don't see physical healing in the atonement, they have a problem with this passage. And there are a lot of good people who, uh, good conservative Bible scholars and pastors who, uh, including like Jay Vernon McGee and John MacArthur and others, who really have a hard time dealing with this passage of scripture because it's when people were being healed that he says he took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, quoting, quoting Isaiah 53. We know for a fact that all that's in the world that's bad comes as a result of sin. And so it's not that critical for us to absolutely decide, is this or is this not physical healing in the atonement? Now, the one thing we know is there is no guarantee of physical healing for us today. But that doesn't mean you need to be careful to then do a disconnect between physical healing and the atonement, because here it obviously makes that connection. But the thing is, the fact is, in the atonement, is my sin forgiven? Yeah, it is for sure. We're not going to argue on that point. However, do I still sin? Do I still drag the old man around with me? Yes, I do until I get to heaven. And so I think ultimately, I believe that that the promise of Physical healing and spiritual healing, forgiveness of sins, it's all in the atonement, but may be manifest at different times in different ways, and ultimately will be manifest completely when we get to heaven. So it's not that he isn't including it. It's obvious from this passage and others that he is. It's just that it's important for us to realize there's no guarantee. If there was, Paul wouldn't have told Timothy when he had a stomach ache, well, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Paul wouldn't have had to pray three times for this thorn in the flesh to disappear and then have God say, my grace is sufficient for you. It just wouldn't happen that way. So don't let anyone fool you into thinking that, you know, yep, if you have faith, you will be healed. Because if that was true, a lot of these faith healers would live a lot longer than they do. They all get sick and die eventually. But at the same time, Don't let somebody convince you that it has nothing to do with physical healing because that too is involved and and Matthew here points out that Jesus was fulfilling that prophecy from Isaiah 53 as he was healing. Now it says when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. So many people were gathering around after he was healing everyone in sight and so so many people were there. He said, come on, let's head across the sea. So they headed across the Sea of Galilee a little bit And uh, a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. So they're heading out. And a guy came to him and said, I'm impressed. I've seen what you've done. I want to follow you. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Kind of discouraging this guy in a way. The guy says, I want to sign up. I'm with you. I'm behind you. And he says, well, do you realize I don't even have a place to live? you foxes even have places to live I don't I'm a homeless guy are you sure you want to follow me now it doesn't tell us whether the guy followed him or not but what Jesus was saying was count the cost don't commit yourself to me unless you realize what's involved don't promise to follow me anywhere don't sing take my life and let it be unless you realize what it is that you're promising unless you've thought about it unless you understand this could cost you to follow Jesus And then another of the disciples said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Seems kind of cold and heartless in a way. A lot of people say that, and there are some um, extra biblical things in Greek that would indicate that there there were people who would use the expression, let me bury my father, to mean that I need to take care of my father and wait until he gets sick and dies. In other words, I'm tied to my family so much that I can't really do anything else. His dad may have not been that old. He may not have even been sick. He wasn't necessarily dead. The idea of burying my father, he wasn't going to bury him alive. But he's obviously not talking about just dead, dead, because how can the dead bury dead? What Jesus was saying was, if you're going to follow me, turn your back on the past and follow me single heartedly, wholeheartedly. Don't allow even your family ties to keep you back from what I'm telling you to do. You can't allow it. It's why you're told to leave father and mother and cleave to your wife or your husband and become one flesh because you can't, if you wait around for your parents to die before you have the freedom to hear from God and do what God wants you to do, well, Pretty soon, you're going to be old, and then somebody's going to be waiting for you to die. And basically, I think what Jesus is saying here is it's time right now to do what I'm telling you to do. Don't allow yourself to be dragged down, slowed down, held back because of some societal obligation that may be in contradiction to what I'm telling you to do. And it wasn't heartless, it was practical. It was, if you're going to come with me, come with me. If you're not, that's fine. That's okay. I'm not making you go. But don't tell me, someday I'll do it. I'll get around to it eventually. Jesus says in other places that if you don't, it's like if you hate your family compared to your love for me. And here he's just saying, you're either going to follow me or you aren't. And I think the question for all of us, really, if God has spoken to us, if there are things that he's been putting in our heart. What's keeping us back? What's holding us up? Are we going to blame our parents? Are we going to blame some other obligation? Are we going to blame our work or something else, our kids? Or or are we just going to say, no, if God tells me to do something, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. I'm going to do it. Because when he says follow, you follow right then. Then we have this next miracle where they're out in the boat, Jesus with his disciples, and Jesus fell asleep in the back of the boat laying there, sound asleep, and the wind and the waves started kicking up. And in verse 25, the disciples came to him and woke him up and said, Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus now, a miracle of a different sort... Not only can He heal physical infirmities, not only can He deal with spiritual problems of casting out demons and do all sorts of other things, but He even has control of the weather. He even has control of the forces of nature, showing Himself as the Creator, as God. No one except God can do that, and Jesus could do it. Lesson for us here, too, is sometimes when it looks like the wind and the waves are getting to you, it looks like you're about to perish. If Jesus is in the boat with you, you're not gonna perish. If Jesus is sleeping, then it's okay. And now a lot of times I think we think, it just seems like God isn't even there. It seems like he doesn't even know what I'm going through. He's not paying any attention to me. I go to him and I pray and I don't hear anything. And it, Well, here's a, take a clue from the disciples. If it seems like God's asleep, maybe he is, in a way, in this particular area. If he is, in other words, if he's not doing anything actively in that area, and of course, he's doing a lot of things that we don't know, but if it seems like he's just sleeping, then just curl up next to him. Enjoy his fellowship. Go to sleep right by him. If he's sleeping, that's the time to sleep. We often feel like, you know, oh, no, if I don't see God doing anything, I better do something. Somebody needs to do something. But then he would go, what are you freaking out for? What are you panicking about? Why are you all stressed out? Do you really think we're all going to go down? Do you think I'm going to allow my program and you, my child, to be destroyed? And so we need to not be discouraged and to panic and to overreact when it looks like we're in trouble because he knows what's going on. He's in the boat with us. He'll take care of us. Then we have this story of the two demon-possessed guys there in in, uh, their Gergesenes, or or Gadarites, they're over near Gadara, um, off towards the northeast side of Galilee, and and it says that he came to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, and there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. It seemed like this was magnified compared to a lot of the demoniacs he was dealing with earlier. Now, in Mark and Luke, it only records about one of these guys, and it says that his name was Legion because he had a ton of demons in him. Here it records two, and some people have said, oh, it's a contradiction, Matthew says there are two, Mark and Luke say there are one. Well, that's not a contradiction at all. If you say there is one, and there's actually two, you were still right, there's still one. For some reason, probably Mark and Luke, as they recorded it, were emphasizing the one guy. It does mention that he was a prominent citizen, the one that they're talking about. And so it may be that one of the guys was more prominent or more vicious, and the other guy just happened to be there as well. So at any rate, it's, it's not a contradiction. And so these guys come out and they said, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time and so they began to challenge him, knowing that they were in trouble, seeing him coming and just trying to get their licks in. And, and a ways off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. Now, the Jews were forbidden from eating pork, but also they weren't even supposed to touch it. But here the, in Gadara, remember the tribe of Gad in the Old Testament, once they... Began to settle and conquer the Promised Land. The tribe of Gad decided they would rather stay on the other side of the Jordan River. And as a result, probably a little further away from the temple and everything, well, eventually what happened is they became pig farmers. Not a good thing for Jewish guys to do, but that's what they were doing. So there's this big herd of pigs there, there in Gadara. And the demons begged Jesus and said, If you cast us out, let us go away into the herd of swine. So they were saying, look, if you're gonna throw us out of these two guys, let us go in the pigs. Now, we don't have time to go into, again, really involved demonology, but, but there's something within the nature of demons that apparently they want a body, they want to occupy something, they want to materialize. And so in this case, they would rather be in pigs than to be where Jesus would send them um which was probably to the pit but so they came up with this idea and he said to them go now he let them do it but it wasn't his idea so a lot of a lot of people who are animal lovers you know really appalled by this story that Jesus would destroy these pigs but They're pigs anyway, but it was the demons that destroyed him. It wasn't Jesus. He said, go. And so when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Over in, um, I think it's in Luke, it it also lets us know there were 2,000 pigs. It was a lot of pigs. So a lot of demons too, obviously. But here the demons go and commit suicide. Now, it's funny that there are people, there are humans, who want to have demons, who want to walk in sin, who desire to experience that spooky kind of you know, hellish doctrine. And, and here pigs have better sense. They go, they go, forget it. We'd rather drown than be possessed. And so they took off. And uh, those who kept them ran away, too they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. People were following him everywhere, and this was kind of an amazing miracle. And you'd think, because these two guys were delivered from demons, they would be coming out and going, thanks, that's great, that's awesome. But when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. They were just going, no, this is too weird for us. Plus, we just lost our ham sandwiches for the next five years you know we don't appreciate it get away and a lot of times you respond when you see the power of God you'll either respond by wanting to draw close or you'll respond by pushing them away you can't just stay neutral it reminds me of the time when Peter after Jesus made all those fish come and everything then he went and fell at Jesus's feet and said depart from me because you're holy and I'm evil and it's that notion sometimes that we get that I don't want to get too close to God. So that's what they did. Another paralytic in, in uh, chapter 9 here. And this story is put in here, I think, because it connects forgiveness of sins with the healing. Because he went in the boat and came back to his own city, which was Capernaum, where he spent most of his time. And they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, over in Mark chapter two, the same story is told, but it's the story that you heard in Sunday school where they actually lowered him down through the roof. It was so crowded, there were so many people in the house. His friends wanted him to get to see Jesus and to be healed by Jesus, and so they actually led him down through the roof. Now, usually on, in most of the Bible stories, it shows they ripped the roof apart to let him in, but actually most of the buildings in those days were made with a patio, like an atrium in the middle with like a canvas over it, and so all you do is peel it back and lower them off. It wasn't uh, quite the way the Bible stories tell it, but it's the way the Bible tells it. So they brought him this guy, and Jesus saw their faith, again, the people who were holding up their friend in prayer, when he saw their faith, he said, "'Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Interestingly, that he forgave their sin, his sin, when he saw the faith of his friends. Now, Jesus certainly must have also seen something in this paralytic, but it doesn't say that. It, it lets me realize that it's not a bad thing for me to intercede on behalf of people who need their sins forgiven. It's a good thing for me when I see someone falling into sin to hold them up in prayer in faith, believing that God's gonna do that work. And so he says, your sins are forgiven, and people are going, this is blasphemous, the scribes were saying, they were thinking that. Jesus read their minds and said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus said, look, I could say get up and walk, or I could say your sins are forgiven, who can do either one, you guys wanna try? And they, of course, couldn't say anything. And then he said, go ahead and walk. Take up your bed and go to your house. And he was healed. And the multitude saw it and marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. Then we have the passage that we dealt with Sunday. If you weren't here, you could get the tape for that, talking about the calling of Matthew and the compassion and mercy that God wants rather than sacrifice. And then it says the disciples of Jesus, disciples of John. Now, Andrew and Philip were both disciples of John the Baptist before they joined up with Jesus. But there were other disciples of John the Baptist. At this time, John the Baptist was in prison. And so maybe they were hanging around or they were talking to Jesus. And they said, how come when we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't fast, and Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. So he's basically saying right now. Now, in, according to the law, the only fast that was mandated was once a year on the Day of Atonement. But their traditions developed two weekly fasts in addition to that on Monday and Thursday where they would fast two days a week. In the early church, by the way, the whole idea of Lent developed a 40-day fast. Originally it was supposed to be 40 hours for when Jesus was thought to be in the grave, but then later they made it 40 days and the church connected it with Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. But fasting is something that Jesus taught, I mean, he said back in Matthew 6, when you fast, and so it is something that I believe has benefit, and and I believe that we should all do it as long as you're medically able to do it, but in this case, he's saying, what you're looking for is for my disciples to look all depressed and bummed because they're fasting. See, he had already said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, wash your face and cheer up and don't look like you're miserable. And so what he's saying is my disciples don't need to look miserable. I'm with them. We're celebrating, we're rejoicing. And then he goes on to say no one puts a piece and by the way he does say when the bridegroom's taken away from them then they will fast. And so I think that applies to us if we're his friends. But he says no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. You don't take a piece of cloth that hasn't isn't pre-shrunk and sew it onto something that's already shrunk because then when it gets wet, when you wash it, it'll rip it apart. And, he says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. You don't take new wine that's just starting to ferment and stick it in an old... They, they kept their wine in animal skins in those days. And when they were old, they would become pretty brittle. And so you wouldn't put wine in there that would be fermenting because it would explode and you'd lose the wine, basically. His, and so he says, but you put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. The reason that he gives these two illustrations is to tell them, look, you can't just take Judaism and then just add on to it everything I'm explaining to you. It's not an improvement on the old covenant. It's a new covenant. It's a new deal. It's something that you need to hear what I have to say, and you need a fresh start. And so that's kind of why he brings that up. There's a, there was a woman next who, um, well, a ruler came, his name was Jairus, we know from Luke, uh, and worshiped him and said, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So Jesus was getting up and as he was heading to go there, a woman came along who had who was hemorrhaging, had been for 12 years. Interestingly, we learned from the other gospels that the little girl was 12 years old. So here he's on his way to, to see to raise from the dead a 12-year-old girl, and he meets a woman who for 12 years has been miserable. And she touched him this time, and he didn't touch her, and she was healed. She thought in her head, if I touch even his clothes, I'm going to be healed. And Jesus turned around and said, cheer up, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And she was well from that hour. Then he came. The little girl was dead And he said to them in verse 24, make room, the girl isn't dead, she's just sleeping. And all the crowd that was wailing laughed at him. But he went in there and he took her by the hand and the girl rose from the dead. Again, another escalation of his miracles, of his power, of what he could do, that he could go to a little dead girl and talk to her and take her by the hand and pick her up and she would be alive. No one had ever obviously done that before. Jesus went from there, and there were two blind men following him and crying out, Son of David, emphasizing that he's the Messiah, have mercy on us. When he came into the house, the blind men came, and Jesus said, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be to you. Again, tying it in with faith. And their eyes were open. and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. So... And I'm sure he understood. It's just he had a particular job to do. And, and he was trying not to draw attention to himself as a healer because he came with a much bigger message, a much more important ministry, and that is to save the world, not just to bring temporary relief, raising someone from the dead who would someday die again, healing someone of sickness who would one day be sick again. But still, his compassion He touched these guys and told them to keep quiet about it, but they didn't. And then there was a man who was mute and demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, he spoke, and the multitudes marveled and said, never seen anything like this in Israel. And the Pharisees, they couldn't say, oh, you're not doing it. You're not really healing. You don't have the power. So what they said was, you're doing it. He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Just mass healings, thousands and thousands of people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Jesus, when he looks at people... He feels for them. He has compassion. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd. This whole picture of Jesus as the great shepherd, as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep, he mentions that a lot. It's interesting that that kind of relationship is something that is supposed to be that of everyone who would serve God and minister to his people. The two great ministers in the Old Testament, Moses and David, were both shepherds before they ever became shepherds. In Moses' case, the leader of Israel. In David's case, the king of Israel. And it's that heart for people that is primary, that's ultimate. That that's what God looks for when he wants to take someone and say, I'm going to use you. Because he still looks at the multitudes with compassion. And if we don't, as Jesus told Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Be a shepherd. If we don't have that compassion, we don't have a right to represent him. It's as simple as that. That's his heart, the heart of compassion. And then he finally said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So he says, look at the crowd. Look at the need, look at the pain, look at the hurt. I've been healing people, I've been touching people, but there's more and more and more of them. There are lots of needs. A lot of people who need their sins forgiven. A lot of people who need compassion, who need that feeling. And so he said, pray that God will raise people up to go into the harvest. And that's something that we should be challenged with as well. We look at the multitudes, we see the world as it is, and our hearts should just say, oh God, please send people. Please raise people up from our body, from among our friends, from among our community. Raise them up who will go out and show compassion on the multitude with the love of God. Interestingly, a lot of people who start out praying that the Lord would send forth laborers, they find out what the disciples found out because in the very next chapter, Jesus sends them out. So he says, pray that somebody will go, and then they go. He goes, okay, guys, go. And so as we begin to pray... As we together join and say, God, please do something, very often God's going to come back to us and say, you know what? What I want to do in your life is actually to answer your own prayer by your own obedience. And so as we pray for God to do work in the world, let's remember, we may be the very hands and feet of God that he wants to use to do it. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed when we see all these miracles you did, thinking of your heart of compassion and, and your power that enabled you to just touch people and make a difference in their lives. But God, we are here now. We're here tonight because you've touched us. You've made a difference in our lives. God, we were lepers. No one would touch us, and you did. You reached out and had compassion on us. We were dead, and you breathed life into us. You took us by the hand and raised us up. God, we were dominated by the forces of evil, and and you delivered us, gave us a fresh start. And God, we realize that there is a harvest that's plentiful and laborers that are few. And God, we pray that you would send forth laborers into the harvest, and if it's us that you're sending forth, help us to hear your voice and to obey you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're about to celebrate communion together. Jesus told us to do it regularly and until he comes back and does it with us. And the children are with us tonight, and they're going to be involved serving you and, and partaking in communion with us as well. And so, uh, could you have all the kids just come up front